so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve as Chair of Research and Technology Ethics and also help lead the ERLC Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. As we continue our mini-series on our recent release volume, The Digital Public Square with BNH Academic, today I'm joined by Josh Wester to talk about his contribution entitled Free to Believe, the case for religious freedom and free expression in a digital age. Today, Josh and I talk about the nature and necessity of religious freedom, especially in a technological society. Josh currently serves as the lead pastor of Cornerstone Baptist Church in Greensboro, North Carolina, and also serves as an associate research fellow of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, where he researches issues such as public theology, political philosophy, and religious freedom. He holds a THM in public theology from the Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary and is currently pursuing a PhD in Christian ethics at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's also the author of a forthcoming book, A Student's Guide to Politics with Christian Focus. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Josh, thank you so much for joining us today here on the Digital Public Square. You're no stranger to the ERLC nor this podcast as you've previously served on staff overseeing research and communications and Christian ethics specifically. And then you've even co-hosted a few of the episodes here on the Digital Public Square with me. But for listeners who may not be familiar with the story, can you tell us a little bit about your background and kind of your interest specifically in the public square, religious freedom and issues of politics? Yeah, this is uh, great to be here. It's great to be back in the saddle uh, doing a podcast with the RLC. So Jason and I have been friends forever. And um, I, until very recently, was on staff at the RLC and did a number of different roles there. But all of them centered around the central mission of the RLC, which is ethics. And um, did that for several years. And I'm actually on my way uh, to start at the, very, at the beginning of March. So maybe by the time this podcast comes out, it'll already be uh, reality for me, but starting as the lead pastor of Cornerstone Baptist Church in Greensboro, North Carolina. So tell us a little bit about kind of your interest in the public square, because this is kind of a unique interest. You focus in issues of religious freedom. You focus in issues of justice issues and kind of the functioning of society. What caught you interested in stuff like that? Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, at first, I was interested in politics. I was kind of like just very narrowly focused on all things political. And as a Christian, I kept bumping into issues where I would ask, uh, 
questions about my politics that, that basically tried to force me to say, hey, how should I think about this as a believer? Um, is it consistent with my faith to hold this value, hold this position, back this candidate, endorse this idea, uh, all, all of those kinds of questions. And as I did that, uh, the, the deeper I went in trying to study and find answers to those things, the more that this whole world of faith and culture started to open up for me. And so I started thinking about not just uh, the way that Christians should think about politics, but how should Christians think about life in the public square? Or in other words, how Christians should think about life in public or our social ethics. And then uh, ultimately what I realized is that I love ethics. Ethics is about how we are supposed to live as Christians. And so I like to spend my time uh, trying to help others think about what it looks like and means to live the Christian life well or to live it the way that Jesus intended. And obviously one of the big questions that we're facing in the public square today that's often not talked about as much, um, but is crucial to our understanding of the public square is this nature of religious freedom. But I think readers, as they dive into your chapter and our volume, might be a little surprised. Um, because when you talk about the nature of religious freedom and free expression, you actually tie that back into the Great Commission. So I wanted to see if you could talk to us a little bit about why this freedom is so central to the Christian life, in particular into the idea of Christian missions. Yeah, I think that's a I think that's an important point. So there are many different entry points to talking about religious freedom. In this particular case, I was trying to make a Christian case for religious freedom. I was trying to help explain to fellow Christians why they should care. And for evangelicals, who are people whose lives are centered on the evangel, the gospel, and about getting the gospel to the world so that every person has the opportunity to hear and believe and, and decide for themselves what they're going to do with this claim that Jesus is not only the Son of God, but that He is King. I, I thought that was a very helpful way to encourage Christians to care about religious freedom. And so I framed the chapter around the Great Commission because uh, it is central, especially in our digital age, to be able to utilize all kinds of digital technologies uh, and especially anything that is you know mediated through the internet uh, in order to advance the gospel, the thing that we care about the most. You know, I remember as a little kid growing up in church thinking, how are we ever possibly going to get missionaries to every people group or every place and every language all over the world? And with the advent of the internet now, we don't have to necessarily make that choice of how can we get a physical missionary there because as soon as they have internet access, as soon as they have even some kinds of basic technology, uh, they're going to have an opportunity to hear the gospel unless there's a kind of restriction on the religious freedom that might prohibit that even if they did have access to that kind of information. So, so I thought that that was a helpful way for Christians to think about we should care about religious freedom because we care about the evangel. We are evangelicals. We, we care about getting the gospel to the nations. And obviously, we don't have time to unpack that idea today, but Christians have often been on the forefront of technological developments and utilizing technology. You think of Billy Graham and his crusades, you think of radio ministry, you think of TV ministry, and even social media ministry. Uh, there are Christians around the world and specifically even working in the technology industry seeking to utilize these technologies to bring the good news, bring the evangel to all people across the world, and to see the church being planted and new churches being started. I think one of the larger conversations that's happening in our society today, and even sometimes within our own Baptist tradition, is there are questions over the limits of religious freedom. And obviously, you don't touch them as much on this in the chapter itself, but I wanted to see if you could help us to understand some of the limits on religious freedom, especially in a more secularizing society. What are some of the questions being asked and also, how do we think about the centrality of religious freedom in the Baptist tradition itself? 
So I think a lot of people think that religious freedom is like a get out of jail free card, or as they love to term it, a license to discriminate. And the reality is that religious freedom is neither of those things, uh, though it is something of a trump card that can be played. I am, we are so, so fortunate to live in a nation that prizes not only civil liberties, but religious liberty in particular, because one of the reasons that we care so much about religious freedom is that we think, as Christians certainly, and we observe this in the world around us every day, that God made us to be the kind of creatures who seek after him. And we not only see that and believe that as Christians, we believe that all people of faith uh, find themselves in that very same spot where they are reaching, they're grasping for the divine, trying to find uh, the answer to some of those questions of metaphysics, like origin, identity, meaning, morality, destiny. Like what, We want to know where those things come from, what our origins are, what what a sense of ultimate meaning is. And we are naturally created to be searching and seeking uh, for those answers. And so when you talk about the limits to religious freedom, you're not allowed to do whatever you want. You can't just kill somebody and say, my, my religion made me do it. Uh, that's not what we mean when we talk about religious freedom. But what we do mean is, and I love the way that Robert George talks about this and others, um, that religious freedom or the exercise of religious faith and practice enjoys a strong presumption of permissibility. I like to say, you know, I steal this directly from the West Wing, but uh, in a free society, you don't need a reason to make something legal. You need a reason to make it illegal. Well, certainly that is the case when it comes to religious liberty. The government itself, in order to disrupt somebody's, uh, what they would claim is the exercise of their faith, the government has to have a compelling, strong, demonstrable reason in order to stifle that. Now, the rules change a little bit when we get into other parts of the public square where we're not dealing with or interfacing with government. But in terms of what are the limits, uh, the, the answer is religious freedom is intended to be robust. We are intended to be able to freely pursue the things that we most deeply believe. And I think that's a, that's a critical thing for our society to function well and for people to flourish. I want to dig in a little bit there and kind of go off script to ask you a question. Um, because often, especially as I've been working and kind of advocating alongside and with the technology industry for robust freedom, our religious freedoms and free speech and free expression, one of the questions that it keeps getting thrown back up, and I think many listeners probably have heard this from their friends or people in their communities, coworkers and such, is there's a difference between, you know, you talk about religious freedom, but what we really want as a society, and I'm saying more broadly, we want freedom from religion. Can you speak a little bit about that? I mean, just rearranging those words actually has a vastly different meaning of what we're talking about with in terms of religious freedom and then freedom from religion. Yeah, I think that that's a really important point, that when we think about religious freedom, what we're not doing is we are not asking the government to favor one religion over another or any kind of religion at all. Uh, religious freedom protects the atheist and the agnostic the same way that it treats the Christian or the deist or the Buddhist. The goal here when we're talking about religious freedom in its most authentic sense is saying that the government should not reward or penalize a person on the basis of their faith. Or in other words, you shouldn't find yourself on the wrong side of the state because you may or may not be on the wrong side of Jesus. And so I think that's a critical thing for us as believers to recognize and to and to defend, especially against those kinds of claims, is that when we see people say that re religious freedom is a weapon that is wielded by people of faith and that we are needlessly or carelessly subjecting those who don't share, who, who may not have any kind of faith at all, uh, to the things that we believe, that's simply not true. That, that is a real, that is a true, uh, that's a misrepresentation 
of what religious freedom is. And uh, frankly, it's just a it's just a bad category to kind of think through these things in. Well, Josh, one of the things you do throughout your chapter is you tie these concepts of religious freedom to the notion of free expression and free speech. And I want to ask you how those two correspond with one another, because often in our kind of wider society, we see questions of free expression, but it's lacking kind of this component of religious freedom. But you see these two rights in many ways corresponding and kind of traveling with one another. So can you describe a little bit of their relationship and how they travel together in our social order? Yeah, I think that's a really important point for Christians to think through. So I'm going to start by reading an inscription on somebody's tombstone to answer this question. Uh, the famed Baptist defender of religious freedom, his name was John Leland. He was a pioneer for us. Uh, he was critical in the establishment of the First Amendment, had a direct relationship with James Madison and Thomas Jefferson. Uh, on his tombstone, it is inscribed, Here lies the body of John Leland, who labored 67 years to promote piety and vindicate the civil and religious rights of all men. I think that's a, um, I think that's maybe the most succinct summary that I can give you of why we believe and why I'm certainly convinced that for all of us, uh, these civil liberties travel together. Uh, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of expression, th these things are inextricably linked to one another. And a government that says that it's going to protect your religious freedom, but it's not going to protect your free speech can easily deem your religious speech something else in order to, um, in order to prohibit it or restrict it. And so, um, it's important for us to understand that these things are not only not easily distinguished, I honestly think that at their core, they are they stem from the same root. Because when we think about civil liberties, what we're talking about are the freedoms that an individual should enjoy in order to live in our society. These are the things that every person, every member has the right to do. And so, it, yeah, it's, it's really difficult to imagine a scenario where you would be able to protect, where the government would step in to protect religious freedom, but not other kinds of civil liberties. So often these type of questions about free speech and religious freedom tend to centralize around the notion of rights and liberties, just as you talked about with civil liberties. So what does it mean that we have a right to something? I think that's sometimes that conversation gets convoluted. I know just uh, for listener's sake, we'll make sure to link to this in the show notes. We welcome Dr. Nigel Bigger, uh, who used to teach at Oxford on to talk a little bit about what's wrong with rights and how he's skeptical about the nature of natural rights. And he talked a little bit more about kind of uh, human rights and civil rights. But what does it mean that we have a right to something? And where do Christians ground our understanding of rights and duties? So this is obviously a question that has so many layers and dimensions. You know, I wouldn't try to begin to uh, uh, argue with Nigel Bigger. I am, you know, that that is just beyond me. But at a very basic, practical level, when we say and assert that someone has a right to do something, we are saying that the government, again, all of this kind of goes back to government and its role. We're saying that the government is not going to prohibit or to restrict your ability, your freedom, your liberty to do a certain thing, or, or in the case of civil liberties, certain, a certain set of things. I think that's important because for Christians, we don't start with government. We start with the Bible. We start with God. And we try to understand our conception of how we're supposed to live. Again, to go back to that notion of ethics and then to talk about Christian ethics, how we're supposed to live. Well, we start with God and His Word, and we try to unpack it from there to extrapolate out what, what do Christians think living together faithfully in a society should look like. Well, for me and uh, for many people, I'm convinced that the, the center of the Christian ethic is the Imago Dei, the idea that all people bear God's image because they are made in the image of God. 
And so when we think about rights, when we think about what, what it is that we are, uh, what is permissible to do or allowed to do, we get a pretty good example of negative rights uh, in the Ten Commandments. So like right there, Exodus 20 in the Decalogue, uh, we, we see these, especially in the second table of the law, we see these negative rights spelled out. So when I say negative rights, I mean the, the kinds of things that, that are accomplished by somebody not doing something. So we're told thou shalt not steal or thou shalt not kill. Well, the, the corollary there is that I have a right to life. I have a right to my private property and personal possessions. And so that's what we mean when we talk about negative rights is that you have a right to life. In fact, it's your most basic fundamental liberty. It's why Christians have such a strong position on abortion, because we think that there's a violation of a fundamental right that all people should enjoy. And so obviously th there are these many different layers, but for Christians, when we are thinking about rights, what we're talking about is the fact that every person has dignity and therefore every person, there are a certain set of things that all people should have the freedom or the right or the liberty to do. And obviously life is first in that conception, but we think that these things that we describe as civil liberties uh, are key to that, including religious freedom and also to self-determination, just to decide, have, have the opportunity and ability to decide how you will live, where you will live, who you will spend your life with, what you will spend your life doing. All of those things are, are fundamental or, or, or central to our conception of rights and what it looks like to flourish in society. So how then would you compare this idea of this concept of individual rights with kind of the social good in many ways, the communal good? I think that's one of the things that we see kind of a tension in many ways. Uh, Robert George, in a book that I know you've read and we've talked about uh, in his Making Men Moral, talks about kind of the tension between individual rights and kind of the communal life or the common life together. So how do we then play out and start thinking about the nature of when we have conflicting rights or conflicting values in terms of the individual versus the community? Because it's not, as you've said and you've already mentioned, that the individual has an ultimate right to do whatever we want. There's always a restraint on that in many ways, tying back into these ultimate goods, these intrinsic goods. So how do we think about kind of that relationship between individual rights and communal rights? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. The The starting place for us is going to be to ask the underlying question, who should decide? Who gets to be the one who decides how a person or group of people are to live? And again, so much of this is wrapped up in our conception of government. So uh, in Making Men Moral, uh, Dr. George, who I absolutely love and am a tremendous fan of, is offering a critique of the project of liberal democracy. And he's particularly criticizing the kind of progressive left liberalism uh, that is so prevalent today. But he's, you know, more more fundamentally than that or broadly than that, he's critiquing the project of liberal democracy. And liberal democracy, for those people who are, you know, for those who might, might be less familiar with the terminology, is basically uh, something that arises out of you know, 17th century England that starts with the thought of John Locke and kind of proceeds outward from there, but it's got two components. So, so liberal or free, like liberty, and then democracy, meaning that we want to be in a, we're going to be governed by a society which all people have consent. And the goal or fundamental first commitment of that society or government is going to be to preserve the freedom of every individual. And so when we think about the difference between group rights and individual rights, 
we have to ask the question, what is the role of government? There are some Christians who answer that question much more forcefully than Dr. Dr. George does in dissenting from uh, liberal democracy by saying that what we really need is some kind of theocracy, some, some kind of state where the Bible's morality and norms are imposed upon all people. That This is the expectation. This is what we believe, and this is how we are to live. As a Baptist, that horrifies me. Uh, I, I think that Baptist history in particular and religious history in general teach us that when government seeks to become a moral enforcer, when government steps in and tries to play beyond its role to regulate the way that we worship and the way that we live, not just to keep us safe, but to try to tell us uh, that the difference between a morally upright and just life and one that is you know, permissible in the eyes of government versus one that is not, all kinds of problems enter into the picture. It reminds me of a quote from the late Carl F. H. Henry that talked about if if government is going to be the one that gives an account before God, this is a super loose paraphrase, but if government's going to be the one to give account before God, let it make those type of decisions. But if it's not, in many ways, it needs to get out of the way because the individual is going to have to give account for their actions and their beliefs before a holy God at the ultimate judgment seat. Absolutely. And government's not good at doing that. John Leland expressed the very same sentiment Uh, Which is to say that, you know, when Baptists decided that the way the state was telling them how to worship wasn't going to work for them any longer because they believed in things like believer's baptism, uh, and they thought that the church's uh, sanction, the state-sanctioned form of worship was not the most biblical or best way to do it, uh, they they paid a price with their lives. They were thrown into prison. They were drowned. They were beaten. uh, They were whipped. They were severely mistreated at the hands of the state because the state took on a role that was beyond not only what God had appointed to it, but one beyond its competence. And the consequences were disastrous. I know one of the things you do is you kind of end out your chapter a little bit is you talk about the necessity for every person to support these kind of broad protections for free expression and religious freedom, especially in the digital age, whether or not you agree uh, with maybe the tenets of religious freedom, but to say, no, that we should ha- we should all be supporting these broad protections, especially today in a digitized age. So why is that? I think it is mostly about the fact that we live in a pluralistic society where there is no longer this kind of monolithic worldview that represents modern day America. I'm not sure if that was ever true, but it's less true than it's ever been today to say that we, we our neighbors don't think like us. They don't necessarily look like us. They might not vote like us. They might not worship like us. And if we are going to figure out how we can live together, uh, that the project of liberal democracy was literally an effort to say, here is what government can do to serve a diverse constituency, a diverse group of people who may not hold all of the same faith or fundamental commitments and values and beliefs but we can still figure out how to live together inside of one society. We can still figure out how to be good neighbors and be good friends and be good classmates or colleagues or whatever and and live at peace with one another, to work toward harmony with one another. And so I, I am such a stalwart supporter of religious freedom and civil liberties generally because I think those things are indispensable in order for us to live well together. Uh, Nobody wants to live in a society where somebody else's worldview is forced upon them, where they're told they can't think a certain thing, can't believe a certain thing, can't live a certain way because somebody else disagrees with it. We we need to have a society that is as free and as open to individuals living according to their most deeply held beliefs 
as we can. There are obviously limits to that. But I think that freedom, like Dr. George says, deserves a strong presumption. And that's why I think it's critical for Christians and others to give such support for these things. Well, I think you bring out a really good point there at the end, because one of the things that's really fascinating, especially as a Baptist operating in the public square, is that we're often, they'll, some, even of our Christian brothers and sisters will mock us for supporting these robust protections for religious liberty. And they'll often talk about religious liberty absolutism. That idea that there's absolutely no limits to religious liberty, but as you wisely point out, there's always a line in the sand. That's one of the things in these debates over pluralism today and principle pluralism, the principled element of this conversation, and I unpack this a little bit in my chapter on conspiracy theories and misinformation, is there's always a line in the sand. They're always at a place that we can't go any further. And so in many ways, I think especially even in our own Baptist tradition, we're debating where that line is. Not that the line exists, but really where is that line? Where do we draw it? What are things we're going to allow in the public square and what are we not going to allow? But as you said, I think that we should give the presumption to liberty and to free expression and to religious freedom um, because that'll help us as we seek to navigate a lot of the tensions today. I'm so glad you said that because the reality is that it it is deeply concerning to me that so many people who are part of, in particular, our Baptist community uh, who are wanting to move away from the origins of the Baptist faith. They are forgetting their own history in order to embrace some kind of of magisterial Protestantism or something like that. Uh, And the reality is that there is not one example of that ever going well. But not only that, we forget that our commitment to religious liberty before it is something that is practical or even principled, it's theological. Uh, It has to do with the fact that we think, like you said, that only uh, every individual will stand before God to give an account for their lives. We believe that laws make false converts, but that they can't convert or change the human heart. Uh, We forget that uh, there is no value in trying to place into the hands of the magistrate uh, the ability to be the enforcer of faith or righteousness. And every time that has happened, uh, it has always gone badly, and it's gone badly for the church. It has been at the expense of true faith and piety, which is exactly what uh, John Leland had inscribed on his tombstone. And so, yes, like I, I am you know, welcome the conversation. We always want to try to better understand the things that we believe and advocate and defend. But religious liberty, the way the Baptists have conceived it, and Baptists are not the only ones. Go read the Catholic statement on religious freedom that came out of Vatican II. It's amazing. And it, it, it aligns up uh, so well with the same things that we have been saying as Baptists for so long. Religious freedom is a vital principle uh, for organizing and living well together. One of the complicating factors in this debate is we've rightfully talked about the nature of religious freedom and free expression in terms of the relationship of the people and its government. One of the big challenging questions, and I don't think we obviously won't kind of answer it today, nor did we even in this volume, and we have some differing views even within the volume, which was something as an aside is really important to me as an editor of a book like this, is that we bring together kind of a large swath of Christians thinking about these ethical questions, and we don't always agree with one another. But nevertheless, each of the chapters, regardless if I agreed with their conclusion or not, they challenged me and pushed me a little bit. And one of the big questions that you and I have talked about for years, and that is really coming to a head right now in these conversations about religious freedom and free expression, is that, and you note this at the end of your chapter, is that technology companies are not technically bound by the rules of the First Amendment meaning that they're not bound to recognize the idea of religious freedom and free expression. But nevertheless, you argue that they should 
recognize these things, especially their immense power that they have over public discourse as mediators of the public discourse, as well as they, they should be seeking to protect and to promote the free and open exchange of ideas today that's critical to the success of their platforms. So I wanted to ask you, can you unpack that a little bit? Help us to understand, because I think when we talk about religious freedom, it's often solely in terms of the government. But we have this new these new entities that are not just operating within specific contexts in our community, but even across the world, across jurisdictions, as Klon Kitchen, a good friend of ours, has written, they are transnational organizations, transnational entities. So how do we start to think about the idea of religious freedom and free expression in light of this isn't a government, this is actually a private industry? So I think that this is one of those areas that can be complicated for people because they think about religious freedom. They say, I have religious freedom. And we need to understand that, again, properly conceived, that's a conversation about the individual in the state or the church in the state. But when we think about these kind of massive uh, technology companies, and honestly, I I would encourage people to think, you know, we've seen high profile cases of this with Amazon and with Twitter and with Facebook, but any kind of digital technology could enter in here. Presumably, uh, Zoom or Apple computers or Microsoft Word, or they, they could place into their user agreements things that would really hamper the, the expression of religious freedom or using those services to advance and propagate religious ideas. And so this is a deeply, deeply concerning question when you think about it. And the reason that I think that they should model themselves after the same kinds of protections that we find in the First Amendment is because the First Amendment has allowed us everything I just said about living together in a pluralistic society with a very diverse constituency, diverse group of people, and allowing us to live well together. I don't want to live in a world that is so fractured and balkanized that people who are Baptist shop at this version of Target, and people who are Presbyterian shop at this version of Target, and people who are LGBT affirming shop at this version of Target, or whatever. Like, you know, play that out over a thousand different scenarios or, or mediums where you think about everything from Amazon and Google to Facebook and Instagram to Microsoft Word and Pages and all of these other things. That's like a very dark, bleak picture of the future. What we have realized is that These companies, obviously, they have an interest in their brand. They have an interest in the product that they sell. Uh, They they don't want their products or their brands to be used in ways uh, that that cause real-life harm to people. But, you know, Jason, you and I have written about this, about what kinds of thinking should go into creating some of those standards and things that we have said are, you know, if you're a company like this, publish your standards and then be consistent. That's a pretty easy, low bar. Uh, secondly, that you should, again, give a strong presumption. You should model yourself after the, the kind of priority of liberty that we see expressed in the First Amendment. And that as we are looking into the future, we don't want, uh, not only do we not want the government, we don't want the largest companies, a lot of whom play a very meaningful role in regulating our ability to communicate and interact with each other. We don't want those companies punishing people because of what they believe. And so I I think that's a very, very important point. And I'm not looking, uh, I would strongly urge these companies to uh, not look to skirt the rules just to avoid anti-discrimination law, but to see uh, as robustly as possible how they can enable public discourse and allow people to promote their ideas and the things that they believe without unnecessary restriction or interference. Yeah. I think that's one of the kind of interesting things as an editor. I mean, obviously, all of these con- uh, these contributions were written separately. 
obviously I kind of give some direction and kind of insight to that. But when they came in and I was working through the essays themselves, I was noticing kind of that theme is that an acknowledgement that these companies aren't technically bound to the protections of the First Amendment, but that they should strive to that. And one of the things that I found really interesting in a lot of these conversations, especially interacting directly with the technology companies, is that many of them see themselves as have they have these almost impossible questions before them. And that it's almost as if this is the first time this question has ever been asked. But that's kind of the beauty of the First Amendment and the beauty of our liberal democracy here in the United States, especially, but even around the world, is that we already have First Amendment case law. We've already had to deal with these things and to negotiate these things and to find some type of happy medium as a society. And I think it's kind of, it's not only quite ambitious to think that, you know, we're the first ones that have to navigate this, but also it, it can be a tad bit arrogant to think that as well, to say like, look, we have to figure this out. Is to say, well, we've actually all been talking about this for a very, very long time. And there's actually a lot of precedent here. While you may not be technically bound to these rules, um, it is something to strive for and to model your policies after. And I think that that can actually have a really great effect on our the nature of the public square, how we think about the public square, especially in an increasingly digital society. One of the things that you did in the, as you were kind of answering that last question that I want to press you on a little bit is you mentioned some of the specific cases that we've dealt with in this book. But obviously, when you write a book like this, we wrote this book about a year and a half ago. It takes like a year to go through all the production, the editing, and even I note in the epilogue um, or the afterword of the book that there are certain things that have changed. Even since publishing the book, there was a, a social media company that was purchased by Elon Musk, obviously with Twitter, and how that shifted the conversation on some of these ideas. But also it didn't in many ways. Some of the same kind of prevailing questions are still there. So what are some of the challenges that you kind of foresee that maybe even as you were writing the chapter that you weren't aware of, maybe some questions in terms of free expression and religious freedom that maybe are kind of coming down the pike or on the moral horizon for us? And how should we be thinking through kind of applying the Christian ethic in what seems to be an ever-changing society? Yeah, I think that there are so many different avenues that change is coming to us. When we think about the future of, and, and so much of that was about social media, but when we think about the future of online commerce and communication, those are kind of broad categories that can help us see man, religious freedom is going to be indispensable. Protecting it, fighting for it, uh, insisting upon it is going to be critical as we move into, again, an increasingly online world. So one of the things I pointed out in my chapter, the portion of the world that is now connected to the internet. There are more people who are connected to the internet than not in our world of roughly 8 billion people. That is a enormous amount of, of influence and opportunity that is, again, mediated through these online outlets. When it comes to specific cases that we have seen, obviously, it's been interesting to watch Elon Musk purchase Twitter and then the kind of, I'll just call it like cowboy justice style of running his company that ultimately caused him to, uh, in the same way that he ran a Twitter poll to decide if they should unban Donald Trump from Twitter, he ran a Twitter poll to decide if he should remove himself as CEO or as the person who was actively making the decisions for the future of the platform that he bought for you know billions and billions of dollars. The interesting question to me is, are these companies going to take seriously their moral responsibility that they hold in influencing a vast portion of not only American society, but as you mentioned, these are in many cases transnational 
organizations that are having an, an immense influence over people in all parts of the world. And so as we're thinking about it, I don't know all of the various ways that those challenges are going to enter in. I, I have talked to Christians in various organizations who, when they're using social media platforms, for example, they will go to publish content or to run certain kinds of ads. They get caught up in filters or get, get flagged or even denied because of some of the message that that might promote. I have talked to, obviously, I've talked to Christians who have had you know works that they have published. I mean, we, we are both friends and know uh, Ryan Anderson, and we are familiar with the case of his book on Amazon and the fact that his book was intentionally, even though it was making a, an argument that runs parallel to a religious argument, it was intentionally making a moral argument separate from religion. And when Amazon made the decision to delist his book, I think that you know we, we said emphatically that Amazon made the wrong call. Were they within their legal rights? Probably at the moment, yes. Will it stay that way? I don't know. Uh, because even if it's not a First Amendment thing, it doesn't mean it's not a legal issue. And so what what I would encourage everyone to, to see as optimal is a future where these companies don't force the government to step in and to create new regulations, where we see, again, increased balkanization and more left or right or center kinds of companies being developed, but instead to take their responsibility and steward it well so that we can live in a more cohesive, unified society. I think that's the, that's the best path forward. It remains to be seen what will actually come of all this. Yeah, and that that best path forward that you kind of articulated there so well um, is a theme that consistently comes up throughout these chapters. And so I encourage folks, if you haven't grabbed a copy of the book, The Digital Public Square, Christian Ethics and a Technological Society, to grab a copy of it. I encourage you especially to check out Josh's chapter on religious freedom and free expression in our digital age. Uh, but Josh, thank you so much, one, for the way that you articulate these really important ideas. And thank you for taking time to join us today here on The Digital Public Square. Hey, thanks so much, Jason. It was great to be back with uh, this listener base that you've been building. And man, thank you for the opportunity to be a contributor to the book. Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing, and they also help to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Josh and learn more about his contribution to the Digital Public Square project in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the weekly tech email briefing that comes out each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues in the public square today, as well as stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe at jasonthacker.com slash weekly tech. The Digital Public Square is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is produced and hosted by Jason Thacker. Production assistance is provided by Caden Christian and technical production by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you and I hope you have a great week.